Hello and welcome to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with Bree. Hey, Scott. A lover of all things genre cool. Fantastical. Fantastical. God, it's been too long. And Scott, me, a skeptic of all things. Skeptical. Skeptical. Alright, listen everyone. First, an apology. Second, a plea. Third. A topless picture. Go to <laughs> www.gonzogenrestop.com. <laughs> Real good. The apology. I think it's been like two months. We don't have to lay blame on whether it's Bree's fault or Bree's fault for that massive, massive absence. Um, but we can talk about that maybe in the course of, of this book. Second, Wait, first a of plea. all, I want to yes. say about that. Um, I'm a podcast listener as Stro- well as a podcast... Provider? I was going to say producer, but then <laughs> it brought me back to that old question of what a pr- producer Hey, do. I've been watching Project Greenlight, and if I know anything about the difficulties of production, I feel for you. Is it pretty great? Do I care how movies are made? That's the magic. You know, I don't want to see what goes on in the kitchen. You must have a strange so, vision of how movies are made. Only uh, half of it is done in a kitchen. And that was mostly for the Catherine Zeta-Jones vehicle, Chef. Chef Whip. Chef is. I don't think that movie was called Chef. But anyway, <laughs> I remember it. And all I'm saying is I listen to podcasts, and you know what? Sometimes they disappear for a little while. And in certain cases, that upsets me. But sometimes, as long as they come on once every few months and report on, you know, like personal emotional struggles they're having and what mental illness is keeping them from talking. I see you, sex nerd, Sandra. Um, So you don't care if a podcast disappears if they explain that when they come back? Not exactly. I mean, it, it varies. I don't mind being given like a slight sense that something catastrophic and deeply damaging has happened to the people in the time of their absence. Whew, okay. Yeah. So basically I want to say... It's Scott that's been dealing with his PTSD, his fallout. <laughs> well, let's talk about what happened. The last book we read was a little little tome called American Gods. Yeah, it was great. It knocked Brie off her feet. I'm not actually going to take all the blame for this. I find that now you actually are putting it all on me. And like, you know, it takes two to um, do any kind of dance. Electric slide. <sighs> There's a quorum for the electric slide, and it's not two. At least ten. Anyway, it doesn't take ten people to do an electric slide. That's crazy. Listen, like a good podcaster, we're here. That's all that matters. So what we did was we read a book called Lagoon by Nettie Acorfor. It was my pick. This is my pick. Bree, before we talk about it, why don't you give us a nice summary? Doesn't have to be long. Doesn't have to be involved. Just has to be full of heart, wisdom, and minimal sexism. Okay, Nettie Acorfor. A total pussy. <laughs> what? Just kidding. You said minimal sexism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this book came out in 2014, and it describes an alien invasion in Lagos, Nigeria. The book actually only deals really with the day the aliens invade and like the couple days fall out until the Nigerian president comes and addresses the nation, and that's kind of where the book concludes. So the book follows three people who are all drawn together by an alien presence in the water the first night. One is a musician. His name is Anthony de Craze. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> um, he's a rapper. He's a rapper. Are rappers not musicians, Scott? No, I meant it to explain the de Craze. He's a classical violinist. <laughs> Anthony de Craze. Another is a marine biologist. Her name is Adora. 
and another is a soldier in the Nigerian army, and his name is Agu. They're brought together on a beach, they enter the alien waters, and in the alien waters, we get a couple brief chapters um, from the points of view of different types of fish. And basically, aliens have landed in the water, and they're sending off this insane pulsing life energy that's making every living creature become bigger, and you know, so all the swordfish grow to the size of houses, and everything's kind of going crazy. And the suggestion is that they'll say, do the same thing for human potential. So basically, these three people are drawn together on the beach, they're taken into the water, they see the elders, who we never meet of these aliens. We only see the aliens in human and animal form, so we don't know what they are like themselves. Then they're spit back up with an alien. Her name is Iodele. I guess that's how I'd pronounce it. Iodel, maybe. I mean, I could be wrong. I have like a hard and fast rule with foreign names, and sometimes I feel like it's more right than wrong. Pronounce all the vowels. Okay, so basically, this alien comes back with them. Her name's Iodele. Um, she looks like a human because she wants to interact with humans, and so that is the face she's taking on. However, we learn later... On which she's taking. Oh my god. We learn later that uh, the aliens can rearrange themselves on a molecular level. So she can become, you know, a monkey, a chair, a mist, whatever she wants. She will become two of those three. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> three That's true. She doesn't become a chair. <laughs> So she goes back to Adora's house. Adora's the marine biologist. She has a husband who has just hit her for the first time that night. There's some domestic drama there. And basically, Iodele's mission is to communicate... Brie whitewashing domestic abuse again. <laughs> <laughs> Ray Rice's ideal nomenclature. Yeah, it's, it says, for better or worse, Scott. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Yeah, Iodele's mission is she wants to gather a big group of people on Adora's front lawn using the rapper's fame to get them there and then talk to them. And when she talks to them, of course, this is the modern era, so everyone records it and goes right home and masturbates to it. And, you know, they just put it out on YouTube. How many people do you think would be told that there's an alien around them and be shown a video of the alien masturbate? Like, the very next thing they do is masturbate. 2%? 5%? What, there are like six or seven billion people on the planet? What percentage of those people are you, specifically? <laughs> it's not one percent, right? I get mixed so up was, on percentages. I was flying with Bree, and I asked her what percentage of flights she thinks crashes. And she said, I don't know, something small, like two percent. <laughs> Dozens of flights a day, which Bree just shrugs off her shoulder. Listen to the naive over here. Thinks you're hearing about every plane crash that happens. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, keep going. There's an alien. There's a big, big meeting in front of the house because the alien wants to talk to all these people. So a lot of different characters who were introduced to in a sort of disparate way gather on this lawn. One is Father Oka, who is a religious leader, and this is kind of recurring uh, in it like this strain of Christian leader that is very radical, very he's a misogynist, he's obviously corrupt, he's scamming people for their money. Um, he's that way. We learn that many facets of the Nigerian government are that way. Uh, so don't worry, the aliens are going to fix it. Um, so he comes on the lawn at the same time. Uh, Nigeria's sort of one fledgling LGBT movement made up of like five people comes on the lawn at the same time a group of uh, men come to kidnap this alien they've heard of and sell her for a ransom, and a ton of onlookers, 
and this little mentally disabled mute boy who will be shot in due course, don't worry. Yes. Give him like five pages, he'll be dead. They all converge, there's a big message, it goes on YouTube, and then Iodele gets shot. Uh, she responds, as we learn, all the aliens respond very badly to pain. She basically like explodes the humans who killed her. They turn into little like meat, piles of meat. Then the second section ensues in which, as in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like describing the progress of books that way. I'm sorry. After chapter four, <laughs> chapter five ensues. <laughs> It's been a while. Obviously, I didn't write this summary down. Only one of us stepped up. Second stain reference. Only one of us stepped up to just off the cuff describe every scene of this book. That is what the summary is, right? The description of it. Yeah, we can pick it up, though. You know, move it along. Okay, so the three main characters in The Alien go to meet the president. They take the president into the ocean. He meets with the elders. And then he comes back. Iodele sacrifices herself and turns into a mist that enters all of human beings just a little bit to make them just a little bit more alien in a way that's really benevolent. And um, But meanwhile, chaos ensues in Lagos itself, right? Yeah. Because a lot of different aliens come up out of the water and alien spirit infuses a lot of other animals and things and some bad people in town are using the chaos to, to run rampant. And, I mean, the last 150 pages of the book, uh, there are a lot of short chapters just beginning with, like, I was there, and random people who we never meet is just their experience of the alien invasion. And something crazy that they see, also the African uh, folklore figures and some of the religious figures come to life. Um, the bone collector, a big spider who's the weaver of all great stories, and they sort of have interactions with the aliens, too. Um, it ends with the president giving a speech basically saying the aliens are here, we embrace them, they are agents of change, uh, Lagos needs to change, and we are going to become a great nation, the time of corruption is over, it's all good. And that's it. So what do you think of Aguiar? <laughs> <laughs> so good. I mean, that's maybe a good way to preface this whole talk, which is whatever I t say you should take with a huge grain of salt. Because I did legit finish this a couple months ago, and I have impressionistic memories of it, but n nothing really strong enough to authoritatively defend any of my positions. That said, I will go straight ahead and barrel through those inhibitions and say wildly inappropriate things. Okay, yeah, so to that extent, I would also like to talk about this book a little more broadly, because um, for one, I thought this book was a little bit slight in terms of plot or what it was handling. All this book covered was like the first two days of an alien invasion. In a way, this book felt like the beginning of a story of an alien invasion to me. That's a little bit because I am familiar with alien invasion narratives. So like the fact that the alien invasion creates some chaos and there are some like crazy things caught on YouTube feels like, okay, that's the beginning to me, but I would like to see it play out. However, that- We gets... all remember that scene in Signs. When the alien walked across the screen. No, it was so good. <laughs> no, I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. That wasn't as much a quibble as mine, because I kind of think that this is sometimes how alien invasions are usually done. We're rarely dropped in like 10 years later, or like the aftermath, or it's usually, you know, before, during, and like immediately after. That's true, but the only way that I feel like this story would end where it does is, and in 
to this extent the book is the logic of the book is internally consistent but if the aliens are as benevolent as the book posits mm, right and a big problem i had with this book was that the aliens really seemed like a plot device to me i have no idea why they wanted to live on earth or to help people their technology seemed way advanced they seemed basically magical right. like magical creatures that's a really good point, and it gets to kind of something that frustrated me with the aliens, in that a thing I really don't like when films or literature does is when it, when it holds back information from a reader simply to manufacture tension. Mm -hmm. It has knowledge, and it spreads it out over the course of the whole narrative, and you get snippets here and there. Because I was frustrated by the actions of some of the characters and the actions, the way the action developed, when you, you don't have any room to criticize how it's happening if you don't have access to the knowledge of what, what's going on. So what that means is that we didn't, we had no idea what the aliens were or why they were there. We didn't really know Iodele's importance or position in the society or what she was doing, whether she was benevolent or not, um, although you can assume. And so that was already kind of frustrating, but that could be partially ameliorated if the payoff is worth it. So I kind of feel you because when the space in which there should have been a payoff was, I don't want to say a cop-out, but very kind of like elided over. Because there is the big climatic scene at the end in which they all go underwater with the president to talk to the elders. Mm -hmm. And you get the kind of, they had a, an amazing discussion and they can't remember what it was or something like that. Oh yeah, anytime they meet the elders, it's, right. it's uh, transformative, salvific, and then they, they don't know. So, you, so we're denied this information, which is going to give meaning to the whole narrative, until the point at which you would get it, and then you're denied it again. And for a book like this, which is hinging on like the conceit and the draw being an alien invasion, that was kind of frustrating. And so I think maybe then the, the disjunction is, is that I think we're reading a different book than than the author might have thought that she was writing in that sense. Because you can do that kind of denial of important plot points for something genre-ish if you're making a bigger statement. And I think that's why, in a sense, yeah, the aliens are a kind of like amorphous plot device to say something bigger about Nigeria. The aliens are a way to survey the grand sweep of Lagos and all of its beauty and chaos and fecundity and depravity. So anyway, so then, so I think that's just, again, a disjunction. It might be because I'm not the reader, but I, that works if your reader's on board for getting that broader social picture from a putatively genre book. Whereas I think you might've been reading it, and like I was to a way of wanting to prioritize the genre above the social commentary, but getting the other. Yeah, I think I largely agree. I was reading this as like very much a a genre book, like a very like a a science fiction book and a fairly conventional science fiction book at that. And I was not reading this the way that I would read like I don't really like these types of books, so I'm not saying I wish it was these types of books, but like sort of literary fiction type novel that is using a sci-fi premise in order to talk about Nigeria. Especially since because that that kind of grand sweep was, I feel like, what a lot of authors could give of any place, which is basically, like like you said, like this is a place where people, you know, there's a lot of love, but there's a lot of hate, and they hurt each other, but they need each other, and all of this, you know, from this kind of, like, dithyram of, like, violence and emotion comes something valuable. 
totally, you know, I that may or may not be true, but that feels like a general human sentiment that isn't really unique to me or worth, like that panoramic picture is not worth kind of sacrificing the genre elements of the plot that are the reason I'm there to begin with. It's a really good point. Although to push back against that, you can note the things that are seem specifically Nigerian here. Right, so in some way it does seem like a very particular commentary on Nigerian in Lagos, for sure, but Nigerian politics and society. The, I can't remember if it was the president or one of his advisors. It was named like Wishwell Williams or something. And the president of Nigeria until like, I guess a couple of months ago, was this guy named Goodluck Jonathan. Mm. So to name someone Wishwell when the president, when you're writing that, is named Goodluck, that seemed like a very conscious attempt at satire, or at least winking in the direction of contemporary Nigerian politics. I guess so, but I feel like everything was really dealt with in broad strokes. Like, if it was a satire, then, like, that could have been a satire of almost any government official anywhere. That's a good point. So maybe satire's not the right word. But I think the way in which the aliens and their benevolence was deployed was very particularly to Nigerian experiences. And I think you recognize that, too. I, I know it's different than what you were saying about the way in which it takes in the broad sweep of Lagos and humanity. But... You see in, in the ways in which the president frames his discussion about what the aliens can do for Nigeria is important. And so some of these different contexts. At one point, she's talking about all the people in the church, in the father's church, who were mad. And going through a list of like scapegoats, why they're using their religiosity in a belligerent way. And she says, <clears throat> some of the congregation condemned the heathens who didn't go to church. Some shouted about how it was coming to pass. Whatever it was, only they knew. They announced that the ocean would soon swallow them for all the sins of these marine witches and warlocks, non-believers in Christ who'd taken over the country. Some blamed the Muslims in the north. Others blamed the Americans. Al-Qaeda, sickness, the British, bad luck, devils, poverty, women, fate, 419, Biafra, the bad roads, the military corruption. So I think they're tying it in quite explicitly to really explicitly Nigerian histories. You have colonialism and civil war, meddling by big powers, and terrorism and such. I mean, yeah, I agree that there are a few passages like that. At the same time, I do think related to sort of that passage, and I almost like this idea where it developed a little differently, I do think the idea that uh, like pain begets pain, that violence is a cycle, is very much in the book. She talks about the area boys, which are basically like roving gangs of... Disaffected youth. Yeah, basically young boys right. who, you know, attack people with machetes. Right. A lot of the religious extremists we meet, in particular Fasayo, a prostitute who later becomes sort of like a random shooter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the moment of her kind of great act of violence, we're given this little vignette about how nobody knows that she's been like sleeping on a heap of garbage for a month. And, you know, so I do think we're supposed to think about the deprivation you know, some of the really sad sort of social problems that are, are motivating some of the violence. Right. So I think there are moments of that. I don't think the book ever really pushes into them or ever really goes any further <clears throat> than to say, like, violence and poverty is cyclical. I agree and disagree in the sense that I think mm. it pushes into them, but in a really contradictory and not consistent way. What were you going to say? Another reason I feel like all of that is significant is that pain seems to be the only thing that really affects the way that the aliens see the right. world. That's a good Anytime point. Anytime they experience physical pain, then all of a sudden they yeah become a monkey. 
and say, I don't want to be a human being anymore right, or stuff right. like that. Just a little wide-eyed of the aliens, if you ask me. <laughs> they seem smart enough to get it without well, I mean, feeling it. The, the, the part of your critique that I most agree with is that the aliens are largely ciphers. And they are the attractive crux of the book, right? They're why we're here. And they're largely formless. So, their, their motivation, that what they want, their actual relation. Again, when we when we could have that big reveal and it's and it's passed over. I mean, I'm I really when I think of some of the other sci-fi we've read or like Dawn, for instance. Though it's definitely like the humans are the protagonists. You know, like we're looking at a looking through the humans at an alien invasion. Like I'm given a sense that the aliens have their own civilization and yes. they have their own concerns and like they're getting something from this exchange. I have no idea what the elders are. When I think about it, I kind of think of the fast cast of Fern Gully. Right. It just seems to be like people who like nature. I mean, again, not to go back to how much I like Dawn, but she does a really good job. Again, from a human perspective, we understand, and it kind of parallels this, that they're supposedly a benevolent thing, but really infused with something nefarious throughout Dawn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here, once we are kind of told that things are benevolent, then we just we have nothing to go back from or yeah. to gainsay us there. And, I mean, the the president's speech at the end. Well, this is where I think it, it also pushes back against a little bit of your point that it's general in its in its commentary. In that, again, the president's speeches, and both in another time when Ayodele speaks herself, they seem like it's attuned very closely to, to a Nigerian or taking our Ghanaian, Anthony, to mm-hmm. like a West African... Um, sense of self. And I think at one time too, and this could be like a thing the book wants to get across anyway, the president's wife is in trouble and the three of them save uh, the president's wife, Anthony, Adora, and Agu. And the president's wife says, you're amazing, you three. What are you? The president asks. Agu said, we're Nigerians, just Nigerians. He looked at Anthony and said, and one Ghanaian. I mean, I think that's, again, it's supposed to do that grounding it very clearly in an African sense. But then just so so what is more is the president's big speech at the end about what this means, what we do with this knowledge. I mean, this would be when the music swells. Right, definitely. This is definitely Independence Day. The president's about to talk. Side note, maybe we can come back to it. Again, when I said the thing about it contradictory in the way it deals with this thing, again, maybe this is something I, as as an outsider to internal Nigerian politics... But to be so damning of a lot of the corruption within the military and politics in Nigeria, to be so weirdly deferential towards the president, not even just like deferential, but like the book never makes us question that it's the right thing to do to put all of this in the hands of the president. Oh, like that it, ultimately executive power is not corrupt. Oh, and yeah. That's where, and that's where the solution will be found. Exactly. It's a strange thing. And just assuming that it's the right thing, we need to contact the president. And the president's going to be the one to calm this. Anyway, post his meeting with the elders is talking to the nation. He's on TV and he says, This is a historic moment for our nation, for it marks an important milestone in our march towards a maturing democracy. For the first time since we cast off the shackles of colonialism over a half century ago, since we rolled through decades of corruption and internal struggle, we've reached the tipping point. And here we are in Lagos. We've passed it. Many of you seen the footage on the internet or heard the news from loved ones. Last night, Lagos burned. But like a phoenix, it will rise from the ashes, a greater creature than ever before. The occasion that has put me here before you tonight is momentous. It marks another kind of transitional shift. 
Now listen closely. This shift is cause for celebration, not panic. I will say it again. Celebration, not panic. There are others amongst us here. They intend to stay, and I'm happy about it. They have new technology. They have fresh ideas that we can combine with our own. Hold tight. We'll be powerful again. O people of Lagos, look at your neighbor. See his race, tribe, or alien blood, and call him brother. We have much work to do as a family. Okay, so that's what he says to the to the nation, again, talking about, strangely for an alien invasion, national resurgence. And then before that, he also says, after talking with his elders, or the elders, the elders had told him that the waters off the coast hit aquatic forests. All the offshore drilling facilities would be destroyed by the people of the water, the aliens. Even in the delta, all was lost. Oil could no longer be Nigeria's top commodity. It could no longer be a commodity commodity at all. But we have something better to give you, the elders had told him, their technology. It's very centralized in, in a Nigerian problem, in a very specific national problem, which is like a resource curse of oil. And that not only are the aliens going to bring everyone together, but they're going to solve a specifically Nigerian problem. I just don't think the book really engages with any of that because the aliens are a cure-all. They're like a bland, identityless cure-all that comes in and we kind of had the promise of a utopia. And so I feel like actually nothing was really said about Nigerian resources and oil and, and what that is because basically it said like, this is a problem just like it, you know, there's another segment in the book where military corruption is a big problem. And obviously there's a lot of like religious authority and problems with that and greed and stuff. Um, and then it's like, oh, but don't worry, the aliens are here. I mean, we even have a segment where we're with this one uh, internet scammer who basically sees an alien interact with an African folklore figure and then has what was bizarre to me, sort of like a patriotic epiphany in which he talks about how he'll never scam anyone again and he loves Nigeria. And I just, it just felt like one didn't come from another to me. And I was confused about that. But also, I will say about that president's speech, two thoughts. Um, one, I thought it was kind of funny and maybe it it's because the primaries are going on right now. And so I'm listening to stuff about that and you hear little clips and stuff. But that whole president's speech just seemed filled with like meaningless rhetoric to me. Like, almost <laughs> every line sounded like, oh, okay, yeah, this is something someone would say. Like He did. There was a section where he said, and the elders told me not to accept Syrian refugees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, And my other thought about that speech was that uh, I'd be so freaked out if this was the speech my president gave saying, like, aliens are here. Uh, we are totally ceding to them. <laughs> 100%. They're among you now. And, like... <laughs> or if the president's like, aliens are here. They are perfect. We must do what they say. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, all right. President's one of them. Exactly. We need to kill the president and get out of here. <laughs> the whole thing read like that to me. Like, all right, I want to read, like, the next book where... You know, like somebody's watching the president and that's like the opening scene and they're like, uh-oh. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's true. That's true. Okay, so your first point there, though, I think, I guess just put it all out there. My, and I do kind of appreciate and like what it's doing and how it's taking this and making it applicable to a Nigerian context and showing Nigerian society. But like you said, with that cure-all, it's the aliens being a panacea and the strangely nationalistic or patriotic tones throughout that kind of hindered my actual enjoyment of this as like a work of art which isn't totally its fault I feel because it's doing a couple things it's 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 telling a story but I think this is also a very conscious commentary on the way in which science fiction or like literature is written so part of the conceit of the book is 
so when you say it's a conventional science fiction tale, I think you're right. But part of its draw again comes from like setting this in in Lagos, right? The the aliens coming yeah, to like, Africa, not Los Angeles. We'll tell you the story you've seen many times, but this one is in Lagos. Right, right. And I think there's value to that, but I think unfortunately, and again, when it's refracted through a forthright Nigerian like patriotism or nationalism, or not even that. I mean, although it kind of is. I mean, you can't even say that it's it's just a a kind of pan-African feeling, but it is very I mean, by the time all the Nigeria. folklore figures come to life, that's magic. Right. That's not even science fiction. Like, why are they coming to life? Well, let's table that. My, the, my, my big thought is that it's, it's a very difficult thing to do to simultaneously, like, make art and correct, like, an historical literary injustice, right? Which is demeaning to, talking down to not drawing in a whole perspective outside of whatever the dominant culture is. So, so it's just hard to, to tell a narrative, a, a genre narrative and have it compelling. Um, that's why it seemed clunky when it was also simultaneously doing this kind of national rejuvenation. It dilutes the political commentary again, kind of that like deference to the president and it takes the teeth out of the genre story a little bit and makes the whole thing kind of artless even if I respect the way that it proceeded. I think I see what you're saying. I didn't put it that well, but okay. If you no, I mean, see. I like your point, basically. Like, to make, to make something artful is in a way to, like, complicate something and to make you sort of ambivalent about what you thought you knew. And then to make something sort of like a, a patriotic screed or something that stirs up national feeling and, like, whatever, like, effective political rhetoric does uh, is to simplify it necessarily. Before we talk about sort of it as an art object, which is before we talk about the format or the writing, which I want to get into, I just want to know, Scott, how would you live in this world? Oh, segment time. Let's talk about positionality. There were some white people mentioned. Hint, hint. If you can't tell by the sound of my voice, I'm a white I was about to say, kind guy. of breaking the fourth wall. That's true. Um, You're a white man, rapist, well, a white rapist. <laughs> pretty funny. That was the yourself. funniest joke I made all night. Because no. I bet you're going to edit it out. Why would I edit that out? I, $10, you edit, you're a white rapist out of if this. If I edit it, that means that I'm acknowledging it's true. Exactly. That's <laughs> the court of law. There's a, they pick up a white guy in the taxi. We get the impression when, when chaos goes bad in the city, um, some of the area boys are chasing the white guys around. But some of them are holed up in a hotel. I don't know. I'm jumping in the water and swimming out to see the elders. You're going to be eaten by a sea monster. I think I'd, I think I'd do okay. The elders don't want to talk to you, Scott. <laughs> That's true. What are you going to do? How are you doing in this world? Uh, well, if I get turned into a mermaid like Adora, I'm okay. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, in general, in this world, which is the sort of like, you know, the violence of an alien invasion that leads to a better place. I die in the violence. <laughs> oh, yeah. You die in all the violence. I die in all the violence yes. in anything. For someone who reads so many of these books, you would do very bad in yeah. genre violence. Okay, that did bring up a point that I wanted to talk about that we've talked a lot about. And you're, you're kind of right, and I might have been overemphasizing, that these political points are more subdued than I'm making it seem at a point. So let's talk about the monsters. Uh, as a monster story, this largely failed for me. The animals in the water that kept expanding, I didn't really see as monsters. But this gets to a larger point, like when that chapter there be monsters, it's in the second half of the book. And there's a break in the book in which 
she radically changes the format. And instead of following these three main characters through the narrative, we start just seeing random shit, like following random people saying, I'm so-and-so, and I was there, and hearing about some monster experience that they had. And this is when the African folktale figures come up and stuff. I felt like the author just wanted to become sort of lyrical. Like the whole last half of the book, she just fills with really pretty epiphanies. Like every single chapter is some random person's sort of spiritual epiphany, sometimes turns to nationalism, but sometimes it's just about like, and then I saw the spirit of Africa rise and commune with this alien, and I felt a great sense of peace. And some of the language in these pieces was really pretty. And I will say this is when I thought the writing of the book in terms of like images and analogy became really lovely. There was one moment when she just has the phrase, in the fond memory of the soily cosmos, this happens, that's kind of nice. Another section where it's a bat seeing, you know, crazy stuff occur, it ends with, there is no time to flee, no time to turn, no time to shriek, and no pain. It is like being thrown into the stars. And that's the chapter ender. A lot of the chapter enders in the second section end with sort of like, and pretty oblivion. And while I enjoyed some of that language, obviously, um, and I thought it was lovely in terms of what it was saying about monstrosity or what it was saying about a human encounter with the foreign or the alien, nothing. It just felt like a, a cop-out of the whole plot to me because I'm not getting anything really like emotionally or intellectually from these segments because emotionally I don't know these characters and I don't care what happens to them and intellectually like can we get back to the main story you know like I want to know what those characters are about and I felt like with the African folklore I mean that's just a whole different thing the book does posit sort of like this pantheistic sort of power that is there from the beginning you know like we hear that Anthony when he was a boy had this power to sort of like boom and make like people in a crowd fly back and hit trees. But that's before the aliens even came. So when that came, I, I was like, wait, slow down. Like, what do you mean? I thought the aliens were the magical element. So basically magic was introduced too, but it was still under this banner of sci-fi that it just, it didn't work for me. It felt like an add-on. So yeah, that was basically it on format. But what did you think about the writing? I mean, I like your point about the perspectival shifts in the last half of the book being more an avenue for, like, lyricism rather than anything, like, structurally important. Although she was playing with themes there, again, as you noted. And I feel like the writing there was was, was interesting. It sometimes seemed a little... Wait, I think I know what you're going to say. Sometimes it did seem sort of writerly or, like, something maybe someone's trying out in a workshop. Like, some sections, there had been nothing like this in the book, and then a chapter would end with saying, like, I mean, what would you think? Took me out of the book instead of sort of drawing me in, which is obviously what, so what would you do is meant to do. What did you think of the dialect? Oh, I forgot about those sections. Pretty, I mean, like, sections with, where they're speaking pigeon is in pigeon the whole time. Yeah, yeah, I, I will say I enjoyed that because when you actually read it aloud, I would totally understand what they were saying. Though, I mean, there would be times when there would be like five words in a row that I don't know. I mean, in the same way that, if you read, like, Canterbury Tales in Old English aloud, you understand what it's saying. But if you look word to word, you don't. That's good. I mean, you're good at that anyway. Like, I, I have a hard... There were sections where I, I just couldn't catch it. Oh, yeah, you have a hard time. Like, with if, like... It, it was Shakespeare, it's, sometimes it's just a, a wall of white noise to me. And I realize now there's a glossary at the end, but... Yeah, I haven't um, looked at it. I didn't see it till the end either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So you need context to understand. Oh, totally, saying. totally. Yeah, um, it's it's not a it's not a judgment on that. It's just that for a stupid reader like me, sometimes it was difficult. No, you're a really smart reader. But I like about you. I know from the Shakespeare thing you mentioned that you don't have that place in your brain I don't. I don't. <laughs> where you go and just like let things happen and are okay with not understanding half of it. It's, it's tough. I can't let it wash it over. It plagues me. your poetry reading. It does. What do you mean? What's blue? <laughs> what feels like water? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> should we go on to ratings then? Yeah, I think we should. And I will say why well, I wasn't really that into this book. Nettie Akorafor, sorry, because we did not do this right after reading it. So I think if I sound a little dismissive, it's there's been some distance. Oh, yeah. Definitely the onus is on us. That was a really good onus joke. <laughs> How many uh, adoferus do you give this? Are you looking at the glossary? Yeah. It's a derogatory term for gay people. <laughs> I guess I'm going to go with five. Whoa, shit. Is that bad? I mean, it's a lot lower than I thought. I wasn't engaged in this book. It felt like a very, something about it, I mean, which is weird because I feel like the draw of this book is sort of the setting. That in itself, like you said, is, it's worth paying attention to. And that's, that's an important thing to happen that needs to happen more. And so hopefully among a proliferation of that, I could just say that like, I thought that something was kind of humdrum about this book. And I thought it seemed, like I said, very conventional and very sort of, I've seen this movie before and there's nothing here that's really drawing me in. Like the things that would draw me into this book specifically are those magical realist or magical elements when all the folklore comes to life. But at that point, I mean, because you know I like fantasy, but at that point I just felt like, no, this is a sci-fi book. Like you can't just like slap on this fantasy shit and act like you don't need to go there in order to bring that stuff into it. And it just didn't make a big impact on me. I didn't, I wasn't very engaged. So I'd say five. I mean, I don't have anything new to add. I like snippets of this a lot. And for me, ultimately thinking the genre elements didn't didn't work. There were moments when I was there, and I thought the big picture of what she'd set up was working pretty well. I mean, I like that it brought to mind the uh, the Nigerian novelist Teju Cole, his response to like the hashtag and like when people say first world problems. I read what he said about it, and it's and it's so great and it's so true. He tweeted that he doesn't like the expression first world problems. It's false and condescending. Yes, Nigerians struggle with floods and infant morality, or infant mortality. And infant morality. (laughs) (laughs) But these same Nigerians also deal with mundane and seemingly luxurious hassles. Connectivity issues on your Blackberry, cost of car repair, how to sink your iPad, what brand of noodles to buy. These are all third world problems. All the silly stuff of life doesn't disappear just because you're black and you live in a poorer country. People in richer nations need a more robust sense of the lives being lived in the darker nations. Here's a first world problem, the inability to see that others are as fully complex and as keen on technology and pleasure as you are. I uh, like that. I feel like I've heard that criticism. Yeah. I mean, for me. Because people don't give it enough credit. Because like, stupid people still say first world problems. Which is so stupid. Maybe it is. I've just talked to you too much, so I assume your it's perspective true. I, is I, like everyone's perspective. I, everyone, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I've always, I've always liked that, and it's always rung true, and I think there's, all, there's something really important for people to recognize and this is in this book was just that on like writ large my appreciation of that and recognition of how of what a service that is does not equal an enjoyable reading experience for like a novel a genre novel and i think even at some point those two agendas clashed in a way that was a little unsuccessful 
I gi- I'm giving this a 6.25. All right. So, Lagoon, we're done. We did it. And now? The, the important thing is that we did we did this. This is, feel free to tweet us and say this is our worst episode. <laughs> Whatever. We're back on the hog. Back on the hog, your favorite expression. Back in the habit, your favorite Sister Act movie. Sister Act 2, Pig in the City. So, thank you. As always, good night, Moscow. What are we going to be reading next time, Brie? Come to our Twitter page to find out what we're reading next time. We will be up in two weeks from this day. Um, I think it'll be Robin McKinley's Sunshine. Well, there's no, I mean, things could change. It's my pick. Look, here's the thing. Scott thinks we've done vampires already, and I feel like like vampires. We've done maybe two vampires, and like we're just beginning. Oh God! Vampire fang bangers. See you here. (laughs) See you here in a couple. Regardless, check our Twitter page. It'll be much more active. Twitter.